Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Treating cancer involves more than treating the body. The disease takes a toll on the mind, too, no matter what organ system it affects. Cancer and treatments like chemotherapy, radiation, and immunotherapy come with mental costs as well. Depression, anxiety, cognitive symptoms, and insomnia are often common after cancer treatment. There is also a syndrome that patients call chemobrain and doctors call frontal lobe dysfunction. It's not an official diagnosis, but patients who suffer with it say they are more irritable and that they can't tolerate loud noises or crowded spaces. Dr. Shanti Gaurinathan has seen all of these things. She's the director of psycho-oncology at PNI, and she specializes in the mental health of cancer patients. She uses a combination of talk therapy and medication to help people recover their mental and spiritual bearings while coping with the disease. She is excited about PNI's new treatment and research in psychedelics program because studies have shown great potential for substances like psilocybin in treating depression. Research in the area is key to finding more options for rebooting the brain after cancer. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. <laughs> so tell me, what is psycho-oncology? Uh, psycho-oncology is... Uh, the field of treating all the aspects of cancer that are not directly related to medical care. So that would include behavioral, um, psychosocial, um, spiritual, and physical symptoms that affect quality of life, like pain. Mm. So you're trying to help people get through this process with, met with in a mentally healthy way. Yeah, get through it and also sort of recover from it, um, rise up afterwards, because there's a lot of losses that are involved mm. along the way. So, so, so what is psycho-oncology? Psycho-oncology is uh, the field of cancer psychology and cancer psychiatry. Um, and we address the aspects of cancer that don't come directly under um, treating the cancer itself. So uh, spiritual issues, physical issues such as pain that might affect quality of life, um, insomnia, cognitive issues. Um, and then we also address behavioral, uh, psychological, and psychiatric issues like depression and anxiety. Well, you said spiritual issues. Yes. Is that how, dealing with um, higher powers, helping people to, to, to tap those sorts of strengths? or I think it's whatever spiritual means to that person. I think for some people it definitely means religion. It means having a faith and using that to get through this time. It's a very scary and uncertain time. And I think having faith does a lot to help people bear that. Um, but for some people it doesn't mean God or, or religions. For some people it really means tapping into their own strengths in their body. Um, people have um, spiritual beliefs about nature that can be very helpful. Mm. Um, so really, just like every other part of psycho-oncology, it's really about meeting that individual where they are in that aspect of their life and making sure that we have that as a support 
during the time when they're going through um, acute treatment and after acute treatment uh, when they're recovering. Are there um, things that come up as a result of the treatment, physiological things that happen in treatment that affect brain health, in addition to emotional things just from the process? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think people are surprised to realize that in order to survive cancer, there are losses um, along the way. And a lot of those losses are related to what we do to treat cancer. So people can get chemotherapy, they can get radiation. Now we have this wonderful thing called immunotherapy. Um, and these therapies are helping people survive cancer and live, but they don't come for free. Mm -hmm. So we have cognitive symptoms. People can have changes in the way they process information, um, changes in the way their brain thinks. Um, changes in mood, changes in behavior, and this can be very disconcerting for someone. You know, you feel like you're kind of losing yourself in the process. Um, and then when you get to the other side, not only do you have to get to know yourself again, but we have to um, address some of these losses so that you can function. Are the losses um, both permanent and temporary? I, I feel like the large majority can be reversed to some extent. Oh, that's good. Um, if they couldn't, I don't think I'd have a job. So um, they, they are reversible to some extent because we do, you know, sometimes we're using medication. Um, here in the Brain Health Center, we also use um, behavioral interventions and we use um, new therapies such as um, cognitive fitness, which is combining exercise and cognitive function testing to help people's brains grow um, and sort of reboot themselves. Um, one day soon, we're hoping to use psychedelics for that same purpose, to, oh. to reboot the brain. Um, so th I think there's a, a million different ways of doing it. Medication is one modality, but we have a lot of ways of helping people get their brain back. So it really is, it's rebooting the brain? Uh, I mean, for some people. I think, I think for some people who have, you know, sort of severe, severe. or intractable symptoms, um, there's a feeling that the brain is not yours. It's, you know, mm. this is not how I was. I was really good at math. I was really good at um, multitasking or dealing with people um, all day long. And now all of that is too much for me. Um, or I'm very slow at it, or it makes me nervous to try and do it. So um, and that's enough, right? I mean, feeling nervous about something that was your... Yeah, I mean, these are a huge part. Our intellect is a huge part of our identity. What we do for a living and how we do it and how good we are at it, that's all part of our identity. So these are things that I try to give back to people. Um, and we succeed for the most part. Is it, um, in, is it ever, is everybody different in this case? Like one person's going to react to chemotherapy differently from the next, differently from the next, or is there anything you can sort of predict about say how chemotherapy is going to affect cognition? Well, I think it's a lot like people in general. Um, there are general themes and okay. there are general things that, you know, a patient will come in and complain about something and I'll be smiling and nodding and I'll tell them I'm smiling and nodding because you're not the only one who comes in and complains about this. I get this all the time. So in that way, yeah, there are themes. There are things that happen fairly frequently and we know where they're coming from um, and we know how to treat them. But then, yes, each individual is different and each individual sort of encapsulates this experience differently. It means something different to them. Some people cope just fine and don't need any help. They have their supports, they're okay. And other people, you know, even if it's stage one cancer, just can't seem to sort of recover from this. And those are the people who are my favorites because I get to help them do that. Because you can you can help them. I do, yeah. You said an interesting word, you said encapsulate. 
this experience. Is yeah. that what's is that what's happening? I, I can I kind of I can imagine that. So, I have a lot of silly metaphors that I tell patients. Well, I bet because, they're not. I bet they're not silly. Because I want I want them to separate themselves from the cancer, and it, it and it kind of gets twisted up because it's in our body. We understood that these are cells that were from our body. And so it gets twisted up in your relationship with your body, your relationship with yourself. Did I do something wrong in order to get the cancer? Is this a punishment of some sort? So I, I try to use language that separates the cancer from the human being um, because none of us deserve to get it. Um, none of us, you know, sort of brought this on ourselves. No matter what we've done, um, it's not something, and it's not a useful concept to blame yourself while you're going through oh, cancer. Oh, God, no. Yeah. no. So, yes, I use words that tend to box up the cancer experience. Um, my goal for patients is to be able to box it, put it on a shelf. You can take it down every once in a while and review it and be sad and have feelings, um, but it should not be coloring our world. It should be nice and neat in a box. Every day. Yeah, you I hope, you, can't you know, eventually, because you can't move on otherwise. So what, yeah. do you, what do you expect or what do what can one expect to have happen with chemotherapy, say? So with chemotherapy, it, again, it depends on which chemotherapy. It depends on which cancer you're treating. But generally, um, there's a concept called chemo brain, which is kind of in quotes because it's not an official diagnosis. But, um, you know, patients can experience uh, what we call frontal lobe dysfunction. So frontal lobe dysfunction is... The, the frontal part of the brain, which is doing executive planning, um, sort of higher level thinking, the, the part of our brain that we need to be able to function optimally every day, I think to think of it as the personal assistant sitting there taking notes <laughs> and doing all of that, organizing ourselves, um, that is very sensitive to chemotherapy, it seems like, because oh, there's That's people who come in and they may have tolerated chemotherapy very well, but then this frontal lobe dysfunction um, is stopping them from being able to go back to work. Or, you know, one of the big things people complain about is they get irritable with their family, which they never did before, or they cannot stand loud noises, or they can't go to places with lots of people and noise. Um, and so there's this almost like almost like the brain has been traumatized and it's and it's irritable, um, and it's not tolerating anything very well. Everything that it used to tolerate just fine now is a bother. Is that all a function of that of that frontal lobe? Is that? I mean, that... I think I think we have to assume that the chemotherapy goes into your blood, so we have to assume that um, the it's... brain is globally affected. Okay. Okay. But these functions, yes, are housed yeah, in the frontal ones... lobe, and these are the functions that um, people present, and it's very sort of debilitating to getting back to your life. You you can't tolerate what you need to tolerate to get on with your day. So what do you do? I treat it. How? Uh, <laughs> or is that, is that secret? <laughs> well, I think the first thing, the first therapeutic thing is just telling people, hey, this is a thing. Um, this is a thing and it's not just you. I have plenty of patients with these symptoms. This is where it's coming from. Um, you know, just validating that person's experience. They're not crazy because they're yelling at everybody and kicking the dog and they can't understand their reactions to things. They're not losing their mind. Even that reassurance and that understanding, so sort of psychoeducation, that is tremendously helpful for people and for families. You know, if um, I can sit with someone's wife and say, hey, he's not yelling at you because he suddenly turned into this horrible person or he hates you. He's yelling because his tolerance is very low. 
and his ability to tolerate frustration, his ability to tolerate you talking to him while the TV's on, it's, it's, it becomes too much. Even that helps people to understand what's going on and helps their spouses and their families to understand. So that's very therapeutic. Um, we use medications as well. There are medications that are sort of quieting to the frontal lobe. Mm. Um, one of those is something called Neurontin or Gabapentin. Oh, I know that one. Yeah, yes. that's, that's uh, and it was widely in, used, right? Yes, and it was in the news recently because there were some issues with um, respiratory um, depression. And so my patients came back in and were very nervous. Um, I'm very careful... I use very low doses, and we, we make sure that people are not on things that are going to put them at risk um, for sort of um, respiratory suppression. But I think that um, I think that sometimes we need a little bit help. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, a little bit of help. How does that work? How does Neurotin work in this case? Is it, or is it too complicated to explain to a journalist? <laughs> so Neurontin is actually an anti, in the anticonvulsant class of medication. It is um, too weak to be an anticonvulsant for the most part. Um, it's it's a very sort of mild medication. It has this dosing window that's huge from 100 milligrams. We've got people on 3,800 milligrams, mm. you know, almost 4,000 milligrams a day for pain. So patients feel comfortable because they know that this is something that, you know, we don't have to worry about dosing. Um, and I tend to let them find the dose that works for them. I give them guidelines and then they get to take it as needed and see if it helps. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of control that the patient has over this medication because I don't have to tightly control uh, the dosing. Um, there's a therapeutic window that's large enough that they can say, you know what, I want to take one more right now because I feel like I need it. And again, reestablishing control over your own behavior oh, sure. feels really good. You know, without making someone dependent on it, just being able to reestablish control and know that today you're not going to lose it because you have your medication and you're you going to be okay. You can reach for something. You can. Right? Yes, and I know that that to some people seems uh, like a like an easy way out, but it's not. You can talk to my patients. It's not an easy thing. Oh to, no, no. To take a medication. No. Uh, it's only happening because it is the way that we reharness the brain and get the brain to start to behave a little bit better. And so what can people do you do you see progress over over time? With, yeah. Yeah. How how long really are we nice. talking about? Uh for gabapentin, I would say within a week to two weeks, people really? are feeling better. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And then it continues to have effects for the next couple months. Yeah. And so when somebody goes through chemo, I know this is speaking very generally, but when somebody does go through chemo, what, on average, how long before they start to sort of feel better and, and you know, well, it do they get back to their full capacity? Um, it's so hard to say because everybody's okay? so different. Yeah. You know, chemotherapy, radiation, you know, some people tolerate chemo well, but not radiation. Some people tolerate radiation and not chemo. Um, some people, the immunotherapies are fine. Some people, the immunotherapies have a lot of side effects. Um, immuno immunotherapy in general is fairly well tolerated, but um, even the immunotherapies come with some psychiatric fallout and also fatigue, um, you know, which people find incredibly debilitating. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Is, I mean, it's just to define immunotherapy in this case, we've talked about it with some of your colleagues, but it's trying to get the immune system, right? Mm -hmm. to We're respond. waking up the immune waking system. Up, okay. Yeah. Okay. We're waking up the immune system and we are, it's kind of like bloodhound dogs. We're giving it the cancer. 
to sniff, oh, and then we're sending it out to go find it. Um, it's really fun to visualize, actually. Um, but yeah, that's what immunotherapy is, waking up the immune system and harnessing its power and sending it in a specific direction, basically. And with that comes some fatigue and some... Yeah. Is, is that is it fatigue from having your immune system working harder? Yeah, well, it's like when you... The, you know, the day before you know you have the flu, that feeling that you have, because your immune system is waking up and starting to fight this bug, by the next day you'll know. But that first day where the immune system is kind of waking up and you feel kind of draggy, um, you know, draggy every day for a long time can be hard to take. Yeah, I know that feeling you're describing so well from, you know, especially when you're younger and you're mm -hmm. a kid, you're like, oh, I don't feel good. Yeah. That's what that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about radiation? What, what Do you see the same sorts of things with radiation? <clears throat> I think the, the hardest thing for patients with radiation is, you know, you can irradiate your big toe. Um, and you can have effects in your brain really? um, because of the way that radiation works and the, the fact that it releases these sort of inflammatory mediators in the body. And um, the brain is very sort of diva-like and doesn't like to be messed with. <laughs> um, and these things are, are upsetting to the brain. So these experiences, you know, that whatever is being burned away with radiation, um, the brain senses that based on the, the body stress, because all this is communicated to the brain. And yes, people will come in and they will have only had radiation and they will have symptoms that are kind of whole body symptoms or brain symptoms. No kidding. What did you say radiation releases? Inflammatory mediators. What is? What are those? Um, let's see. Or is so, that too complicated for a journalist? <laughs> I don't think anything's too complicated for a journalist. Well, you, you don't know me. I've Go never ahead. met one before, no. <laughs> but you seem fairly bright. All right, well, anyway. Um, so, so basically, the body's response, stress response, um, sends out these communicating chemicals and the communicating chemicals um, go all over. And so the brain gets the signal too, oh, there's a giant stress happening somewhere, maybe in your big toe, but there's a giant stress on the body happening somewhere. Um, and while this is good for survival, because the body needs to know and the brain needs to know if there's a stress going on somewhere, um, those same inflammatory meters when it's sustained or when it's over a long period of time, can change the way the brain works. Change the way the brain works. Yeah. The Even brain does not, not like doing... this level of stress over time. So what happens? So the brain, in layman's terms, the brain becomes a little irritable, a little bit mad about, you know, swimming in stress. Um, we know that stress is not good for no, the brain. No, no. Yeah. High cortisol levels are not good for the brain. No. Is this producing higher cortisol levels too? Or is it something like that? Well, it, mostly it's something like that. But okay. everything that we do in cancer from the moment we walk in and say the word cancer to the patient is producing high cortisol levels, right? Because this is a level of stress yes. that we don't experience in regular life. When someone goes, guess what? There's a murderer. He's trying to kill you. Also, he's in your body, and you're going to walk oh. around with him. You can imagine that for people, this is a level of stress that we don't experience in everyday life. Not at all. No. Okay. So yeah. that triggers cortisol. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So that's a great way of thinking about it. It's yeah. from the word go. This is from the word go. This is not a normal life experience. And it just and it 
Yeah, and there's and there's more to come and more to come, and hopefully then it ends, mm -hmm. and you start to feel better, and that's where you come in. <laughs> yeah, well, I come in anywhere you need yeah. me, anywhere right? along the way. Yeah. Yeah. When, when do you normally engage with a patient? Like what? The journey. There's really um, there's no set way with with the breast cancer patients. I tend to see them after they've had their surgeries, but there's some that before surgery they're really anxious, and then I get involved early on. Um, or if they're making big medical decisions and they, and they need some help with that because they're kind of stuck, um, you know, the anxiety can stop us from being able to make those decisions properly. So I never want people to be making decisions from a place of fear. So I try and help people with that. Um, uh, with other cancers, I get involved at different stages. Um, brain tumor patients, it really runs the gamut, but often it's after surgery, after treatment. Um, people are put on steroids. Steroids have a lot of psychiatric effects. Mm. Um, depending on where the tumor is in the brain and what they took out, you can end up with cognitive effects, speech problems, um, you know, problems with processing or communication. And all of those things can be so daunting that people do become anxious or depressed from it. So what else do you have in your toolbox? And I, I imagine it's large. Beyond Neurontin, uh, you mentioned exercise. Mm -hmm. What else? Or let's talk, we should talk about exercise. I think we should talk about yeah, exercise. I think it yes. seems to be the the great. I mean, there's it's absolutely what do we call it? So your one of your colleagues called it a poly pill. It's got everything. Mm -hmm. So what? How does it come into your world? So there were some recent articles actually talking about how exercise is actually medicine in cancer, and we should be thinking of it that way. Um, and I think I think the old model before we got better at treating people without making them as sick. The old model was that when you when you treated the cancer, people were so sick that the, the ability to, to be mobile was not really an issue. People didn't have that ability. But now we have these modalities where people really tolerate the, the treatments much better. Um, they're able to go about their day. There's a couple of bad days and then you're back to business. And so we have to revamp our thinking about how we encourage people to go about um, living. And one of the things is if you were sedentary before, we really do want to push you to sort of start to exercise because we know how good that is for the body and the brain. Um, it helps with tolerating pain. It helps with um, your cognition, um, improves blood flow to the brain. It keeps depression and anxiety at bay for some people so mm. that they don't need treatment with medication. So there really is no true justification outside of issues with mobility and being very, very physically ill. Um, there really is no reason why we shouldn't be thinking of exercise as part of the prescription. I'm going to go for a run right now. <laughs> no, it's that kind of thing though, right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's yeah. just... It's a, it's a, it's such a, it's such a powerful drug. Yes. Okay. So we've got exercise. We talked a little about drugs. What else? Diet? Nutrition. We call it nutrition. And that is part of our cancer support team. We have really beautiful people who are um, experts in, in nutrition in cancer. Um, and I really think that that's another place where um, we could do better, um, you know, because there are ways of nourishing the body to make it so much better when the body is going through chemo and radiation. Obviously, people have nausea, they have vomiting, they have changes in what they want to eat and whether they want to eat. But if we can support that, then you can really look at how you were living 
and you can make changes. Yeah. You know, sort of a- I'm not a believer in people judging themselves and being like, oh, you know, I did this and that caused cancer. I ate red meat and now I have cancer or I smoked and I have cancer. But I do believe that it can be a huge impetus for change, and that's actually a really good thing. Oh, absolutely. You know? So when you say we could do better, you mean as a society or, or as... I think as as physicians treating cancer, I yeah. think that um, unfortunately nutrition is something that is not really paid for by insurance most of the time. Oh, of course. Um, so um, we have here at St. John's and at P&I, we have this lovely, lovely uh, philanthropic you know, sort of philanthropic push. And so we've been able to pay for people to get nutrition, but I think... Nutrition, like a nutritionist, somebody yes, with Yes, nutrition consults, a... um, where the nutritionist can look at your specific body and what's going on with you and your cancer and come up with a plan of how to best optimize your nutrition. Um, but yes, there are lots of studies that also show that, that the way we eat can really help us in... Um, how we recover from cancer, the rates of recurrence. We have we have studies that show that as well. So it's just a matter of getting it more ingrained in the sort of the system. general thinking so that, one, it can get paid for and be affordable for mm-hmm. people, and two, as physicians, that we really do put an emphasis on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know people who, once they have cancer, they come out and they've suddenly discovered blueberries, pomegranate, um, I interviewed Mike Milken once who went through prostate cancer and he offered me a blueberry pomegranate arugula shake. Okay. Like, you know, so, I mean, I think people, it, it, to, to your point, uh-huh. people get the message and they make these changes and they start to think, yeah. hey, yeah. what am I putting in my mouth? And, you know, whenever it comes, it comes. But yeah. Yeah. Um, these kinds of changes, you know, they stand us in good stead no matter what. So... If cancer is the impetus, and cancer is the impetus, and then we we make change. So our job is just to make the change process available to people, allow people to get the education they need to do this the correct way. Sure. I think that's where we need to be. So how long has the field of psycho-oncology been around? Oh, I think it's been around for more than 30 years. Um, But what made it gain traction is the fact that we have people surviving cancer so much longer now. Um, I think before, you know, in the 60s, um, we didn't have a lot to help people survive cancer. And now that we do, it becomes about, you know, getting people well. Um, but then the second half is getting people to thrive after they get well. And so who, who, who started this movement? So who started the profession? Jimmy Holland um, is credited, Dr. Jimmy Holland is credited with being the founder of psycho-oncology. And um, it was this recognition that there are all these other factors outside of, you know, the patient's actual medical treatment that really affect outcomes, um, psychosocial factors. Who do you have in your life? Um, what's going on in your in your life? Um, behavioral factors. Do people have coping skills, or, or do they have, you know, a lack of coping skills in general? You know, coming into cancer. Um, and spiritual support, social supports, um, the ability to properly treat pain so Mm. that people can get back to their lives, um, and emotional suffering. And then the sort of larger psychiatric issues like clinical depression and clinical anxiety disorders that can crop up as well. Those aren't the things, you know, I think, especially, you know, back in my day, um, those weren't the things that came up when you thought about treatment of cancer. It was the sort of, you know, let's see, you know, 
high risk procedures or whatever. But this is, this sounds more like, I mean, we're, we're getting smart, right? Aren't we getting smart? Like we are about all these things, right? Well, if you, you know, sort of my typical patient would be a breast cancer patient, which unfortunately I do have patients who are in their 30s mm-hmm. or in their 40s. Um, they have young children. Mm. Um, there's people who need to be dropped at school. There's people who need to be picked up. There's meals. There's, you know, coordination of care. So, you know, even when they're not feeling well, there is this tremendous pressure to get back to functioning. Um, and unfortunately, in breast cancer, for many of the patients, even after we've gotten rid of the cancer, there are these medications that we put people on for five to ten years five to, pre- to, 10 years, to yeah. prevent the return of cancer. So that's five to ten years that you're on a medication. Most of these medications have the potential for psychiatric side effects. They can make us irritable. They can make us tired. They can make us have pain, actually, um, body aches, and um, definitely anxiety and depression mm. or insomnia. So if you're going to ask somebody for five to ten years to struggle with this, this is the large majority of their children's childhood. This is the large majority of, of their mothering years or they're, they're taking care of these families. Um, and, you know, they don't want to be robbed of those experiences because they don't feel well the whole time. And that is why it's very important for us to sort of, you know, surround them, support them in any way possible, get them back to a place where they can um, be who they want to be. That is absolutely, I hadn't thought of that, but five to 10 years, of course, you've got to support Mm -hmm. on those kind of drugs that, I mean, very brave ladies, but it's very hard. Yeah. Do, do patients tend to, um, do the effects of the drugs, those side effects tend to diminish over time? Do you ever get used to them? Do they ever? For a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. For a lot of people. I mean, my goal with a lot of people is really to get them to tolerate the medication long enough for it to settle. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, people, the, it, it's kind of a moving target. Symptoms change. Some people have no symptoms and then later on they start to develop symptoms. Mm. Some people start out with symptoms. There, There's a wide gamut of medications. So the oncologist can change medications if they feel like someone's not tolerating something. But again, the pressure is take this stuff so that the cancer doesn't come back. So you're not going to stop it. But, you know, it's very difficult to put something in your mouth every day and know that that is the cause of your symptoms. So, you know, we want to relieve some of those symptoms so that's less of an issue. What's what's the most gratifying thing about your work? Um, I can kind of guess, but... (laughs) I kind of love all of it. Do you? <laughs> I do. I do. I, I love my work. I'm so lucky. I think the moment when patients realize that they may not be the same person as before, but who they are now is going to be great. Oh, that that yeah. is a really nice moment. You know, when they finally see the light at the end of the tunnel and, okay, there were losses. I am different, but this is going to be great anyway. I mean, you know, I live when, for those moments. When they get to yeah. that point and they see it. Yes. That yes. has got to be. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And that must happen at different intervals. It does. From yes. the time this, of diagnosis and treatment, yes. right? Yes. And, you know, even if people aren't getting better, um, it's just such a privilege to be able to walk with them while they go through this. I mean, even if the cancer stays, even if we pass... Mm. Um, I get to be there, and I get to make sure it's okay. How did you How did you get into this? 
I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. So you, you, the 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 short answer is by accident. Okay. But, um, but you med school. Lucky accident. Really? What was the lucky accident? Um. Well, I was uh, in residency. Okay. And for. For psychiatry. Psychiatry. Yeah. You, okay, so I was trying to get back. So you went to medical school. Did you know what you wanted to do when you went into medical school? Well, definitely not psychiatry. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, psychiatry. And then what happened? <laughs> and I had an amazing mentor in the last rotation of medical school. The very, very last, the throwaway one before you graduate that you don't care about at all. Really? Where was this? Um, this was in a place called Danbury, Connecticut. Okay. And his name was Dr. Sperling. I don't know if Dr. Sperling's around anymore, but if he is, I'm sending him love. Um, and he loved what he did. And I had been struggling because I loved internal medicine. I got a letter from them saying I should be an internal medicine doctor. I, I had fun in surgery, and I have a letter that says that I should be a surgeon. But I didn't have a place where I could really spend time with patients and get into it with them, you know, yeah. their stories. Um, and I've always loved stories. Um, I was a lit major, so oh, stories okay. are my thing. Okay. Um, and then I found him and I found this field where you get paid to sit with patients and hear their stories, you know, and, and really delve into who they are. And I mean, from that time to this, it amazes me that this is a career that you can get paid to do this. <laughs> it's just, it's just such a, such a beautiful thing. And it's such a privilege. And, um, I did veer a little bit towards medical psychiatry because I, I really did love medicine mm. and I do like knowing what the liver is doing and the kidneys doing and where the tumor is. And I like coordinating with the oncologists. You know, I really like keeping that medical oh, hat sure. on. Yeah. Um, it makes it slightly more challenging, but it also, I think in some ways, cancer in particular, um, kind of burns away the nonsense and you're able to get to the crux of what's going on with people so quickly. And there's this sort of opening, this small opening where you can jump in and start in the middle instead of sort of slowly inching there the way you would with sort of general psychiatric practice. That so I find that really, really very exciting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sorry, what did you say about the throwaway part, uh, the throwaway rotation, what did you, you said? Ah, so at the it? end of medical school, right before you're graduating, okay. you do a rotation to finish your requirements or whatever. But mm -hmm. by that point, you've definitely got a bit of senioritis. You've already, <laughs> you know, applied for residency and done what you needed to do. So, um, and I actually wasn't going to residency because I wanted to um, have my first son. I wanted to have a kid. So I was actually not going into residency. So this was really a throwaway rotation. I wasn't going to do anything. And then I met Dr. Sperling and I think I worked harder on that rotation than I And that rotation was? It was uh, psychiatry. It okay. was yeah. uh, outpatient psychiatry with a strong focus on therapy um, and a lot of sort of um, very, very sick patients. Mm. And so, but he was someone who didn't believe that when someone was very psychiatrically sort of psychiatrically disturbed or ill that you couldn't still reach them and try and do some therapy and and, and try and um, alleviate some of what was going on inside as a person not just with medication okay so he taught me how to do that and um, and I just thought it was like science and art put together and it was humanistic and um, I knew that that's what I was going to do once I was done having that first baby. Sure. 
And this was, um, this must have been, it's just a surprise to you because you thought, oh, I'm just doing this last rotation and I'm done. Oh, yeah. And I come from and a culture that doesn't believe in psychiatry at all. Is that right? So, yeah, no, we don't believe in psychiatry. What, what culture? Um, I'm Sri Lankan. Okay. Yeah. So um, our culture is a lot more about not talking to strangers about your problems. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, no, we are not, um, at least. Growing up culturally, I was not taught to talk a lot about feelings, and um, I think psychiatry was a bit of a stretch for my parents. Yeah, That's interesting. What did they think? I didn't know what to think. They're like, okay, what? <laughs> they're like, uh, they're happy now. I think. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Well, I'm half Italian, so that's all we do is talk about our feelings. Oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, that's interesting. Okay, so then, you t- did you take time to have your first? Yes, he's boy? twelve. Okay, yes, he's and then 12. how long? Did, when did you? Then you went. So when I after I had him, I uh, took my last board exam. Um, he came with me, um, <laughs> and I did some rotations, and I knew I wanted to do psychiatry, and I. Got my first choice, went to Cedar sinai and... Oh, congratulations. Learned the field of psychiatry very well. It was a yeah, great yeah. training. Yeah. How long is that? Four years. Four years, okay. Yeah, because it's, it's a specialty. So okay, and then when did you start to focus on... Is that Was that a residency in... That was a residency in, in psychiatry, all of okay. psychiatry. Yeah. Okay, so then you had to go back and do... No, actually, my you... last year, uh, my, my final year, I... Um, basically focused on medical psychiatry. So I went to UCLA and I did the women's clinic there. So that's um, learning about how hormones and different stages in a woman's sort of reproductive mm. cycle, what that has to do oh. with um, their, and has a lot to do with it, yeah. <laughs> um, with their their mental health. Um, so we treated pregnant, postpartum, IVF, menopause, um, that kind of thing. Okay. I did ECT at UCLA. They were kind enough to let me do a rotation there and certify What's ECT? Electroconvulsive therapy. Okay, so. And I did that just because I was very afraid of it and I wanted to understand it. Um, for you. Yeah. And I do understand it and I realized that it has value. It has a place, yeah. Yeah. And then I did uh, a lot of rotations in cancer psychiatry at Cedars, at UCLA. Um, I did rotations in cancer psychiatry. And what what initially drew you to that? Was it, it sounds like what's well, a progression? I think medical psychiatry in general yeah. was of interest. Yeah. And then um, uh, again, I, I met people who are very good at what they do. There was a doctor at Cedars named Dr. Wolcott, and he loved his work, and I fell in love with his work too. And um, I just realized this is a moment in a patient's life when you can make. A tremendous impact. Um, I think I must be an instant gratification girl because <laughs> it's so much impact and it takes um, so little time to be able to get in there and make that impact yeah. because people really, really are at a, a crucial moment in their life. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah they're open. And, and that became a little addictive for me, the, the fact that you could make such a change um, and so quickly. Um, so that, I think, hooked me. So you've probably seen some pretty, I mean, you've talked about a couple, you've probably seen some really profound change in yes. people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, and, how, and how long have you been at PNI? Um, let's see, a year and a half almost Yeah. it will be, yeah. You like it so far? Yes. <laughs> yes, I moved here for a reason. What um, was that? Um, just this kind of a light around this place. I mean, the, the doctors here are lit up and passionate about what they do. 
Um, and I don't think that you can be unhappy working with people who are passionate about what they do. Um, it just sort of creates this energy and this drive. And um, yeah, I'm just sucking up all their <laughs> all their energy, and and you know, and it drives me too. So. Is it helpful to have people in different disciplines in the same kind of building on the stairways oh, yeah. and meeting? And the collaboration is, you know. I think, you know, what I would want for myself if I was sick. Um, because That's there's a, good... there's, a, there's a synergy, you know, there's like, it's true, right? I want my yeah. doctors to all be thinking about me and synergistically sharing ideas. And, um, that's exactly what I would want for myself or someone I love. So. Yeah. Well, there's all this, these all these theories about creativity and creativity and meaning in the arts and in science, which are you know, is mm -hmm. an art in itself, but it talks about this mixing, this mm -hmm. random, it's often random mixing. It really is just meeting somebody on the stairs mm -hmm. that leads to breakthroughs, mm -hmm. right? It's, you know, in the hallway in clinic, yeah. I'm in the cancer clinics, and in the hallway in clinic, you um, run into a doctor and you go, oh, hey, about your patient, so-and-so, and, um, you know, in those four or five minutes, I think the human interaction is important. I think it's, it helps us to validate each other's experiences, and it helps us to keep doing this work, because it is difficult work. Um, and then, um, yeah, two brains thinking together, you know, come up with something that each separate brain may not have come up with. So yeah. I'm a big believer in collaboration. I'm a big believer in, um, you know, doctors who communicate. I love outside the box thinking when it's needed. And I think that when you put a bunch of doctors together, that's what happens. You know, if we can't find a solution separately, then we start to think outside the box together. So, um, yeah, and I just, you know, these are great doctors. I'm happy to be here. I'm sure they're happy to have you too. Yeah, I don't know. We'll ask them. <laughs> Dr. Gary Nathan, this has been a real pleasure. I, I thank, thank you so, you so much, much for sitting down with us. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.